0: I wonder where my stepstool's at, don't you? <laughs> Somebody was looking at me, and they're like, wait, you're the pastor's brother? What, what happened to you, right? <laughs> well, I got the gray hair, and he got the height, you know. I, uh, he was about three years younger than me, but I think he beat me out at the dinner table, you know, and you can kind of see that. But uh, anyway, it's uh, been a blessing uh, to, to be able to see what God's done here uh, over these last, now, I guess, what, 14 years, roughly. The uh, Lord's been so good to you, and I, I hope that as you come, that uh, you cherish what God's doing here because this is indeed a a work of God. And so when you you cherish that, that you would pray and desire to just see that continue and that you would do your part to help this church be as uh, consecrated and as strong as it can possibly be. Um, And and, in this world in which uh, we find ourselves ministering, it's so imperative that we stand, as we said, in in fallen times. And so today we want to look into the Word of God, Isaiah chapter 6 and I know in the early service our time's a little bit more constrained, so I want to kind of be mindful of that. But maybe share some stories. Someone said you got some stories on Brother Josh. He likes to tell on you and the other brothers. And I said, "Oh, time would not permit me to tell you all the stories about your pastor." But I'm also his guest this week, so I better be better be careful, right? But uh, and he's a lot bigger than me. I better be nice as well for, for that reason. But uh, there's so many stories that we could tell. But uh, maybe we'll we'll sprinkle. Sprinkle some in throughout the time, but it's been a great honor and privilege to be with you this morning. Again, my wife uh, Sarah is with me. Uh, my youngest uh, Abby is with me. I got four children. I got the twenty-one year old all the way down to a fifteen-year-old. They're all either driving, moved out, or uh, have their permit. So it's a whole other world, you know what I'm saying? When you live in, in that world, but uh, God's been so good to us. Uh, Twenty years pastoring there now, in, in Chillicothe, and seeing what God's done in places like this, and. Uh, Circleville and other places uh, you know, around the state and beyond. We thank the Lord for that. Well, today I want to look into Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, verse number 1. And our theme in this revival is standing in a fallen world. So Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. I'd like to read down together to verse number 13. And I want to preach to you today about who is this king of glory. Who is this king of glory? Isaiah 6, verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw also the Lord sitting up on the throne, high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. And with twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said, I woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. From mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said, I Here am I send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord hath removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree, and as an oak whose substance is in them. When they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father God, we count it a blessing to come. We thank you for your holy word. As we approach into this inner sanctum of the book of Isaiah, this Bible within the Bible, we pray today you would touch every heart. Help us, God, to see you for who you are on the throne, as the King of glory, high and lifted up. God, may we rise above the fray. May we realize that the things in this world are not where we need to concern ourselves uh, with allowing it to confuse us and create uh, discord and confusion and chaos within our minds. I pray today you just help us to see you in all your glory and to be able to be set at peace with whatever may come our way in Jesus name. Amen. may be seated today. Well we live in a fallen world would you say amen? Uh, There's so many reasons it's fallen. We we see that uh, whatever God has sought to to do and to say the world has tried to undo and unsay whether God uh, cre- decreed creation uh, whether it was gender or marriage family God created us for his glory and for a purpose whatever God has tr- sought to say or do the world has tried to undo and unsay they say just the opposite of that and we live in a day and time where nothing is off limits you know there used to be such a thing as innocence but no not even more anymore the youngest among us are now uh, definitely within the target of those within our world we have a sick culture, a shifting church, and superficial Christians. And we live in a day where we must be aware. Matthew Henry said, those in most danger are the least aware. What's the sad reality is, is you as a church know, but our world doesn't know. They're unaware of who God is. They're unaware of what is coming. And indeed, the world that's at its worst needs a church to be at its best. I pray today that that is our heartbeat. Because today what has happened is truth has fallen in the street. So why doesn't God do something? You know, if God has the power as you claim and God has the knowledge as you declare, why doesn't he do something? Well, I'm reminded what Isaiah 59 says, our iniquities and our sins have separated us from him, that God will not see and God will not hear, God will not move. Our sin has separated us. And it later says in Isaiah that truth has fallen in the street. Truth was embodied as a person who got trampled upon. And as it fell in the streets and it tried to revive and it tried to stand up, it was being trampled, unable to arise. And I look at that today. So oftentimes, truth has been trampled in the street and embodied as a person not able to get up. Listen, but when we think where God's going to start, if he's going to revive and do a work, he always begins in the same place. Uh, We wish he would start in the White House and then begin to move to the Congress and elsewhere. But we know that he doesn't start in someone else's house, but he starts in his own house. And man, we know that if my people, he says, it starts with the people of God. He tells us in Ezekiel 9, 6, that judgment must begin at my sanctuary. First Peter 4, 17, judgment must begin at the house of God. So God's going to clean his own house before he deals with anyone else's house. And So God's going to do work in us before he does a work through us. And so we realize that we can't just critique the world. We have to let the Lord do a work in our hearts and lives first. So this morning, I want to look at this thought of who is this king of glory? You know, I think that Satan is the author of confusion. Would you say amen? And he loves to create confusion and chaos. And our our lives are bombarded uh, with smartphones and devices. And and we're always kind of connected and tuned in somewhere. And we're, we're just constantly inundated with negativity. With thoughts that would create doubt and confusion. Which would cause us to wonder, what is God doing in this world? And cause us to get distracted from the things of God. And so this morning, what I want to do is just just to push everything back and rise above the clouds and see God for who He really is. Because no matter what confusion and chaos abounds, and listen, it happens every day. The moment C.S. Lewis said you get out of bed, the world comes rushing at you like wild beasts. Amen? And so what we have to do is to push back and to rise above it and to listen to that still small voice of the Lord. Who is this King of glory Who is this king of glory? Well, we know the book of Psalms says in uh, Psalms chapter 22, we see the sacrifice of the king. Psalm 23, we see the shepherding of the king. But in Psalm 24, we see the sovereignty of the king. That the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Five times in Psalms 24, it uses this phrase, the king of glory, the king of glory. And it asks twice in verse 8 and 10, who is this king of glory? of glory and today I ask that question who is this king of glory today I want to look at a very sobering text Isaiah chapter 6 and it is such an important text to read and study and I think for many reasons and I trust that you're in a good strong bible preaching bible teaching church I know your pastor and his wife and family and I know the kind of preaching that you get here week in week out I don't really know why you call for revival because you get revival every week around here I know that but we do live in a world where they don't hear these kind of truths. And it's imperative of us to continue to uphold that banner. To shine forth the light. Romans 3.8 says there is no fear of God before their eyes. Today we walk into this inner sanctum. We come to the holy of holies. And we begin to deal with a subject that's not easy to bridge. We are treading softly as we approach to this. I want to talk today about the glory of God. The holiness of God. And there are many subjects we can speak about and not feel yourself to be a worm. But as we walk today into this holy of holies, it's impossible to do so. This word holy is a word that we know very little about. We may use it in common slang. We may say words like holy moly or holy mackerel or holy Toledo. But it's really a word we know very little about. Today I want to talk about the glory of God, the holiness of God. God is the holy one. He is totally pure. He's completely separate. When we think about God as being a holy God, we need to talk about His otherness, His separateness. Now separateness is not a word we use often, but it indeed is a word that describes well the holiness of God. That God is holy. He's clean. He's cut differently. He's unlike us. He's not a man that He should lie, nor the Son of Man that He should repent. There's nothing about God that's common, familiar, or ordinary. God is in no way, shape, or form plain. But today, Christianity has tried to make Him familiar. They've tried to bring Him down. And I say to you, as we see in the book of Isaiah, we need to keep Him right where He is. Today's form of Christianity does not like God to be high and lifted up. We like a familiar God, one that we can connect and pal around with. But there's no aspect to God in the Bible of him being ordinary. You see, today's Christianity has a familiarity that breeds contempt. Evelyn Underhill said it well. If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. There's an aspect where we do not want to know all about God. We can't know all about God. And if you could figure everything out about the mind of God, what kind of God would he be? (laughs) He wouldn't be a God worth worshipping if our little minds can figure him out. The familiarity of all things religious. A.W. Tozer said, well, no religion has ever been able to rise above its concept of God. And Christianity at any given time is strong or weak depending upon her concept of God. Today's trouble in the church that's shifting away from her roots is that she sees God in an unworthy conception. God has revealed himself all throughout Scripture. His nature, his attributes. He's in another category separate from all of us. Yet today we find that so oftentimes Christianity has become so casual, so commonplace, it's so familiar. There's such irrelevance today and it breeds irreverence. Greg Moore said something about casual church. He said, what happened to reverence? With many today it appears worship of the Almighty is slight and carefree. Some women give more thought to their makeup and men to the game after the service. This is a fitting point to make than that we have gathered to meet with God. The assumption seems to be that deity is content, thankful even that we have set aside our precious time on our Sunday to give him some of our attention, that he is ever smiling, even when some barely bother to rise from their beds, happily to virtually worship week in week out with our online churches. They wouldn't engage with a mailman with so slouch and slovenly a disposition, but here they are worshiping before God, Many approach the burning bush every Sunday with their sandals or bedroom slippers still upon their feet spiritually and otherwise. With many today, worship of the Almighty becomes slight and carefree. But what happened to reverence? When did it become an endangered species? Has God not the right to ask many professing Christians today as he did the negligent priests of Israel in Malachi 1 verse 6, where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? He goes on to say, and I ask this not to the bizarre outliers given to almost unbelievable forms of irreverence, things that go on in churches today like spraying the congregation with water guns, drive-through means of grace, and dance contests in the worship service. He said, I ask this to the normal, seemingly respectable church attender flippantly going through the motions. Do you approach the Lord with fear and trembling? And I ask this of myself. Do I consciously worship every Sunday before the holy God, the untamable lion of Judah? Did I ask you, what do we know of God? We have such a microscopic, fractional view of who he really is. This reminds me a few years ago of something I saw on television. It was a, a, it was a product they were trying to sell on a, a show called Shark Tank. And these entrepreneurs were trying to create this business. And their product was a skinny mirror. skinny mirror so what's a skinny mirror well you could kind of figure it out uh you could look into the mirror and regardless of how big you were or how thick you were when you looked in that mirror you were skinny and so I sat there and I thought in my mind who in the world would buy this like I don't want to know what I don't look like I want to know unfortunately what I do look like so I can address the issue and it to me shows a warped view of reality you may not be thin but when you look in that mirror it makes you thin and I think we look at God and we have twisted him we've used grown-up Plato to make God into the kind of God we want him to be one that forms and fits to our lifestyles he's the God that we make him but my friend this is the apostasy of our day if someone asks the question what is God like who is God how important this question is because we will never rise above our concept of God who we believe God is will define who we will become. I ask you today, what do you think of God? Tell me your view of God and I'll tell you how you're choosing to live your life. Your view of God is directly connected to everything about you, your plans, desires, purposes, and pursuits. If you have a high and lofty view of God, then your worship will be noble and elevated. If you have a nominal view of God, your worship's going to be light and trivial. Reminded what Exodus 15.11 says. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Well, as we look at Isaiah 6 this morning, we see that Isaiah is a prophet of God, called to Judah. He was a prophet sent to the southern kingdom, lived about seven centuries before Christ. Isaiah 1 says that he ministered under the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He was a prophet calling the people who were straying back to the Lord to obey his word. We see in Isaiah 1 that the people of God as his children had drifted away. They were servants that were not serving the master, that they were sinful and filled with all sorts of iniquity. He had just given in Isaiah 5 this parable, the parable of the vineyard, that God had created this vineyard and he'd hedged it and he'd taken all the stones out of it and he built and uh, laid this, uh, this great vineyard. And as it should have brought forth plentiful fruit and grapes, it brought forth wild, fruitless grapes. And he gave a sixfold woe in chapter 5 that you're familiar with. But as we come to Isaiah chapter 6, we find now that Isaiah is beginning to show another aspect. He begins to see something. He has this great vision of God. And we look at Isaiah 6, and your mind immediately probably runs to Isaiah 6, 8. You know, who will I send and who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. But let me remind you of something. Before we ever get practical, we first need to get theological. Before we're ever going to go or stay, we first need to gaze at the glory of God. Isaiah 6 verse 1 says this. Notice, in the year that King Uzziah died, I also saw the Lord sitting up on the throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Well, who was King Uzziah? For the most part, he was a godly king. He's also known as Azariah. 2 Chronicles 26 says that throughout his reign, he sought the Lord. The Lord made him to prosper. And we find that God blessed him, blessed Judah. They had defeated the Philistines and other enemies. They had advanced the people of God. That he was someone who was cunning, a man of innovation, intelligence. He was a great administrator. He became king at 16 years of age. He had reigned for 52 years his name was spread abroad and much set by. And he became strong. But unfortunately became strong in his own ability. And he attempted to do something he was not allowed to do. He went into the temple. He went in to make an offering of incense. Something that only the temple priests were permitted to do. And God judged him. He struck him with leprosy. And it rose up in his forehead. And they thrust him out. This man who had a great reign crashed and burned at the finish line. Can I say to you, my friend, it's not just how you start. You have to finish well. His headstone would have read this. He is a leper. They didn't remember all the things that he had done. They just remember how he finished. You see, you may have started well. You have to finish well. He was finishing his life as an outcast. And so what is the significance here? Can you imagine having for most of his reign... A good and godly king and we're not talking about a four-year interval we're talking about 52 years for most of the people in judah this was the only king they ever knew some of them may have been born under his reign and lived out throughout their adult years under his reign and he led the people in a prosperity they had fortified judah they they had marched this was the golden era uh, much of what happened in judah but then all of a sudden we find that he drifts from god god strikes him he separated out and the people begin to stray from God. And now the king has died under the judgment of God and the people are left floundering, looking around as sheep without a shepherd. What will they do? And it's in times like that, and I believe we can relate today, where we have a void of leadership, where we find ourselves in similar circumstances, where there seems to be a lack of leadership, a lack of authority. His reign had now been marked by being an outcast judgment a one who was judged of God. God has removed him to show his people, Judah, that their confidence was misplaced. That they should not trust in their king, but their trust should be in the Lord. Psalm 78 says, when he slew them, then they sought him. Proverbs 3 says, for the Lord shall be thy confidence. Remember, dear friend, today that we must trust not in the White House or any other leadership in our land. We must not trust in what some Great business person or deliverer can bring. We must not trust in other things. The Lord is our confidence. The Lord is our trust. We find ourselves in uncertain times, just like Isaiah found himself in. And to look to the spiritual scene by and large, it's not a much better place to look. So much of the church scene today is alarming. So we find today our confidence is found in this King of glory. Who is this King of glory? Let's walk through these verses together and pull some great truths out this morning. Notice as it says in verse 1, as the king Uzziah died, uncertainty had set in. And I believe we find ourselves in the same way. Who is this king of glory? I walk you through these great verses. Verse number 1 says this, in the year that king Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. The first thing I want you to see today, in fallen days... In difficult times, when uncertainty is always abounding, the first thing we must always do is look to see the Lord. Look unto the Lord. Take your eyes off the storm. Take them off the circumstances. Don't falter under the weight of the storm, but lift your eyes up unto the King. Seek the Lord. See the Lord. As it looks like all things are falling apart. I like what A.W. Tozer also said, while it looks like things are out of control, Behind the scenes, there is a God who hasn't surrendered His authority. Psalm 115.3 says, He's done what He will. Oh, dear friend, we need to see the Lord. Secondly, we need to see verse number 1 as it says, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne. (laughs) Know today that the throne is set. Always throughout the Bible, we see when you get a glimpse of God, you see the throne that is set. It is established. It is not on shifting sand. It is established. It is in the presence of God. And it is set. Micaiah saw the throne. Job saw the throne. David, the sons of Korah, Ethan, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the apostle John all saw the throne. And it was established. Revelation 4-2 tells us that as well. You see in Isaiah 6 verse 1, earth's throne was empty. But heaven's throne never is. Sitting upon the throne. And it says in verse 1, he was high and lifted up. High and lifted up. I say to you today, we must remember that the Lord is in heaven. He's on the throne. He's high and lifted up. Oh, how our world wants to bring him down. Oh, they like to make him common and familiar. They like a buddy they can pal around with. But we must remember, he is high and he is lifted up and He is the potentate, and we are not. One thing about potentates and kings you would note is this. When it talked about them high and lifted up, you would see their thrones were high and lifted up. If you came into their palace, if you came into their realm, you would see that they were up above the people. And so there was a sense where, if you could picture, not that I am king or God, but if you could picture in a sense seated upon a throne, and I'm elevated up above you, there's a sense where as you come unto me, You are under my feet. And the higher and loftier the throne, the higher and more noble the king. Can I say to you, his throne is above every throne. His kingdom is above every kingdom. We need to keep him high. And remember, we're always under his feet. And it says there that the train filled the temple. What is this? Well, the train was in a sense uh, the extension of his rope. I don't know about you, but I don't like to wear clothing that gets beyond my feet or my ankles, right? If I were to throw some of Brother Josh's pants on, I'd be dragging them around the ground, you know? But when you think about God, it says that His train, His robe filled the temple. I get this picture of a robe that didn't just encompass you, but it literally, His robe extended throughout the temple. They say the greater the leader's robe and train, the greater their glory. God's robe and train filled the temple. And this says something else to us. If God's robe extends throughout His temple, let's say you're not going to battle with a robe on. You and I always get this imagery of God that like God has to get up and He's got to run around and do everything. Can I say to you... God is seated. God doesn't have to move. God has all the myriads of myriads of angels that do His bidding at His beckoning command. God doesn't need to lift a finger, if I could say it that way. 10,000 times 10,000, 100 million. 10,000 was the highest number they could get, so it's more than 100 million. Myriads of myriads of angels do His bidding. He's fully and firmly seated and in control. Oh, dear friend, remember today, the heathen are going to rage. The people have imagined a vain thing against God. But God sits in the heavens on His throne. He is high and lifted up. He doesn't need to move. All He needs to do is laugh. He laughs at the raging of the world. Yet how oftentimes do we get so caught up in the raging of the heathen? We allow them to dictate to the children of God and they sway our joy. They sway our victory. They keep us from the life that God would have for us because we're caught up in the foolishness of the heathen. We need to remember who is on the throne, who's high, who's lifted up. And his train fills the temple and he will do his perfect will even though it looks like things are out of control. All things are working for his ultimate and perfect end. Remember he said, be still and know that I am God gets better verse number two we just now get into verse two above it stood the seraphim you say you can't preach longer than our preacher i don't know i'm pretty close <laughs> they where do they learn it i don't know verse two above it stood the seraphim each one had six wings with twenty covered his face and with twenty covered his feet and with twenty did fly notice here it talks about the seraphim now note something here that seraphim is the plural form of that seraph is singular seraphim is plural these are the burning ones the mighty burning ones these created beings these holy mighty fiery burning ones that encompass around the throne of god the presence of god and they burn before him we see the fiery holiness of god but note here it says they had six wings they were stopped wondering why did they have six wings what creature did god make some little kids gonna tell me at the door what creature did god make that had six wings I don't look at birds and say, well, they got six wings. I don't even see those little chubby bumblebees who probably need six wings. They're able to get by with what God gave them. So why in the world do these seraphim have six wings? Well, there's a reason for it. It tells us here in verse number two. With twain or two, he covered his face. With twain or two, he covered his feet. And with twain or two, he did fly. We see that as they came into the presence of God... They did this. They they used two of the wings to cover their face in worship. They used two of the the wings to cover their feet in modesty. They used two of the wings to fly in obedience. These holy, fiery, mighty, burning ones in the presence of God... When they approached unto Him, when they viewed Him, they covered over their face. They saw God and they worshipped Him. They covered their face because they were in the presence of the Holy One, the King of glory. And then to be modest, they covered their feet. No amount of indecency was going to come before the King of glory. And then they finally used two wings to be in obedience to Him. There was no stretching in to the presence of God flippantly. They came before him with reverence and awe and fear. Four wings used for humility, reverence, and worship. Only two were used for going and doing. Oh, dear friend, when we approach unto God, we find just like they that we will burn for the Lord. It says there that the, essentially the closest ones to him were called the mighty, fiery, burning ones. Let me say it to you He is a consuming fire. And the closer you get to God, the more you'll burn for God. And there's sometimes in our lives when we look at it and we wonder why things don't afflict us or things don't bother us. The love of iniquity will cause many to grow cold. Uh, sin will come and we will be distant from God and we'll not burn anymore. Sometimes I've had people say things to me it's like, why you let that bother you? That's not a big issue. And I just think in my mind, I'm like, don't try to bring me down. I know what God's done in my heart, and if God has convicted me in this matter, this, this is eating me up. It may not bother you at all, but man, I, I hope I don't get cold. And there's times where I get over there, right? I may look and say, well, why is that bothering you, right? So there's a sense where when we're closer to God, we're going to burn for God. When we're distant from God, we're going to be cold for God. We must know today that God is holy. When Moses came into his presence, he fell before him. And he didn't realize this at the time, but when he came down off Mount Sinai, his face glowed. He had to cover his face over. Can I say to you, when you come in at God's presence, God is not changed, but you will be changed. We must know today that God is not our buddy. He's not our longtime friend. He's holy. His goodness exceeds our understanding. His severity is difficult to read about. Every encounter with God was always such that mankind went flat before God. Moses fell before God. Joshua fell before God. Ezekiel fell before God. We see Saul fell blinded before God. This is the holy God that is. Do we treat him this way? You ever stop thinking about what it's going to be like in the end of time? You get to the back of Revelation. You find in Revelation 20 verse 11. It says, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. How powerful, how glorious, how mighty is this King of glory that all the heavens and all the earth are going to flee at His presence. What are you facing today? If you fear God, you need not fear anything else. He's awesome and He's awful. Do we burn like the seraphim? Do we cover our face before Him? Do we cover our feet? Do we cry out for His holiness his separateness do we move at his beckoning command are we quick and fleet and ready to take his whispers and quickly go and do as he beckons us to do verse 3 one cried unto another and said holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory notice here we find this glorious god this king of glory It thricefold says these words holy 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 notice first what it doesn't say You see, if today's Christianity could write this, they would say something different. They would say, love, love, love. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Grace, grace, grace. But the hymn of heaven is not about the love of God or the grace of God or the mercy of God. The hymn of heaven is about the holiness of God. And it talks about the triune God, the plurality of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And I think there's no question that there is clearly the case there for the triune God. Let us, right? We see that here in this very text as well as others in the Old Testament. And though it could be speaking about Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit, there's another aspect that we need to bring to our attention. When we try to emphasize something in English, we change the way the sentence ends, right? Think about a period think about a comment think about a question mark or if you're really trying to emphasize something strongly you'll add an exclamation point well the hebrew language was much different than that whereas we may put an exclamation point some people even when they text they can't even send anything without putting an exclamation point i got some people in our church that are that way hi exclamation point okay exclamation point thank you exclamation point and at some point when everything's an exclamation point nothing's an exclamation point right That's not what's going on here. In the Hebrew language, the way that they would emphasize something is that they would repeat it. In the Bible, many times you'd hear this word, behold. They wouldn't end it with that. They would begin it with that thought. Behold. Behold was an arresting word. You see the word behold in the Bible, listen to what's about to follow. This is that stern voice from your parent. Behold. Listen. Listen to what I'm about to say. If they wanted to emphasize something not just to good, but to better, to the second level, they would repeat it. They would say, holy, holy. They would say, they would say, truly, truly, verily, verily. Right? We see that in the Bible. This would take it to the next level. But to emphasize something to the superlative, to the highest degree, they wouldn't just say, behold. They wouldn't just say, holy. They wouldn't just say, holy, holy. They would say, holy, holy, holy. They would thrice repeat it. They would show that he indeed is the superlative. These seraphim aren't just saying that he's once holy or twice holy. He is not just good, better. He is the best. He's in a category all his own. This continues on and on in heaven until this very day and time. They're about the throne day and night. Day and night they're emphasizing this. His holiness. Now in these days and times we find that Christianity is far different from those days and times. Tozer goes on to say later, he says, I'm afraid our fathers knew God in a very different manner. James Usher, the 17th century Irish archbishop, used to go out to the riverbank, kneel down by a log and repent of his sins all Saturday afternoon, though there probably wasn't a holier man in all the region. He felt how unutterably vile he was. He couldn't stand the dingy gray, which was the whitest thing he had ever set over against the unapproachable shining whiteness that was God. And to this very presence of God we come. And I ask you today the very obvious question for all of us this morning, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, when you come into God's presence, you will see God for who He is, and you will not be able to help but to see you for who you are. The Bible says in Matthew 5, 48, therefore be ye perfect even as God in heaven is perfect. Are you as perfect as God? 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 reminds us, be ye holy, for I am holy. God turns and you say, well, pastor, we we get that God's holy, but but leave us alone. No, God looks to us and he commands of us and he says, look, I am holy. Now I'm commanding you to be as holy as I am. And then we see, pastor, there's no hope for this. Next Next to God, we find that we are unholy. So many today want to lower that and say it's not important that we live to behold. We don't want to live in these kinds of ways. And we want to even condescend to people who want to try to call us to walk close to God. But then it continues on in verse number four. And it says, the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. The cry of the seraphim echoed back and forth. There was a calling out and an echo back and forth. And the foundations and threshold of heaven shook. There was an earthquake in heaven. You talk about power, that is power. This isn't merely the voice of God, this is the voice of the seraphim that are shaking the threshold of God. We must tread lightly when we come into this holy of holies. Now what should our response be in verse number 5? Notice the confession of Isaiah. Then said, I woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What is our response? Of all nations, Israel was God's people. Isaiah was the prophet. He comes into God's presence here, and as he begins to look, he sees himself. Listen, my friend, we live in a world that is so dirty and filthy and tainted. We breathe it in. We get it from our mother's milk. We live out our days, and everything around us is tainted and filthy. And we don't know anything of holy because all we know is unholy. This world gets into our pores and our nerves until we have lost the ability to conceive of the holy. As Isaiah captures the glimpse of the glory and holiness of God, how would he respond? Would Isaiah jump and bear hug God here? Would he dance before him? Would he argue and question with God? Would he then pull out his list of whys and seize the mic and seize the moment? Oh no, that's not at all how he responds. Isaiah 6 verse 5, he begins by saying this, Woe! is me you know what literally that word woe is it's an onomatopoietic word isn't it it's a word that has a feeling behind it It, you know what literally it would sound like if i could say it the best of my ability it it was something that you would say but it was something that you would feel when he saw god he saw himself and all he could do was to cry out he was impassioned and, and expressive in grief and despair Woe is me. I, literally this means I am dead. (laughs) When I stand before God as a sinful man, I am dead. I am coming apart. I am ruined. Notice here that Isaiah was not going back to Isaiah 5. He had already given the six-fold oi to Israel. This wasn't a national woe. This was a personal woe. When he saw God, he wasn't pointing. There's no speck finding here. There's no moat he's looking for. He's looking inward because he knows he's standing in the presence of the king of kings and lord of lords. And he saw the glory of God. And when a man comes in the presence of God, there's no place for pride. You can be assured of one thing. Where there's pride, there's not the presence of God. Because you can't come into the presence of God and be anything but broken and dead and saying, I am ruined and I am coming apart. Isaiah 6, 5, he goes on to say, that's not enough. He says, I am undone. I am dumb. Literally, I am mute. I am silence in the presence of God. I'm not going to be stating my case. I won't be blaming God. I won't be doing anything but covering my mouth. I get so weary with people who want to blame God for everything. I get so weary with the world that can't wait to get an audience before the king of glory. And I'm telling you, when you get in the presence of God, you will be saying, Oy! I am silent before him. Every mouth will be stopped before his glorious presence. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. You ever wonder why he says lips? There's a lot of body parts. Why in the world would he choose lips? Why not some other part? He said, I am defiled. The whole, you know what he's saying? Think about Isaiah for a second. Isaiah was a prophet. He's saying the holiest part of me, the best part of me as a major prophet is completely and totally ruined and defiled. When I am in the presence of God, I find myself completely ruined. Now consider this today. Contemplate this that God created humanity, chose out Abraham from the fallen nations, and used this man. We go from Abraham and the people of God, who were the most holy people of all nations. They were the people of the covenant, they were the people of the state of Israel, the seed of Abraham, given the promises. And from that family of covenant, state, and promises comes Isaiah. Isaiah is the most holy man arguably on the planet. The best nation, the best man, and the presence of God, the Holy One. He declared, I am dead. I am dumb. I am defiled. And then not to leave anyone else out, he says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Can I say we are dead, dumb, and defiled? Why? What brought him to this conclusion? Well, verse number 5 says this. Look at it as it closes out. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We hear of His love, and yet heaven sings of His glory and holiness. We see the King, and then we see ourselves for who we really are. Dear friend, I just want to challenge your hearts as a church today that when all the world is just rushing at you, You need to push back and remember above all the fray, there is a God that is high and lifted up and glorious and see Him for who He is and then you'll see yourself in your right perspective. We are not righteous. We are not as we ought to be. We have fallen short. As we come into His presence, there is brighter light than we've ever seen before. Billy Graham wrote this. He said, several years ago, I was to be interviewed at my home for a well-known television show and knowing it would appear on national television, my wife Ruth took great pains, so we could all understand this, that everything looked nice. She had vacuumed and dusted and tidied up the whole house, but had also gone over the lounge with a fine tooth comb, since that was where the interview would be filmed. When the film crew arrived with all the lights and cameras, she felt that everything in the lounge was spick and span. We were in place along with the interviewer when suddenly the television lights were turned on, and we saw cobwebs and dust where we had never seen them before. In the words of my wife Ruth, that room was festooned with dust and cobwebs which simply did not show up under ordinary light. Consider, we live our days and we say, I'm not so bad. I'm better than most people. God isn't going to compare us to one another. We come into that light, into that presence. and We know how dirty and filthy we are. Listen, we must not skip into his awful presence without the holiness of God. We cannot approach unto him. We must prepare to meet God because all things are open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I like one thing that Tozer said here. It isn't enough for somebody to mark my uh, mark a New Testament and rub my nose in and try to comfort me. All the time today, we live in a day where churches are trying to accommodate the sinner, make them feel good about themselves. And I'm here to say there is no conversion if people don't know that they are sinners and they need to repent. I don't need the comfort of God. I don't need to be told how good I am. There's nothing good in me. He said, I don't want to be comfort. I want to know what it will be like in that hour when I leave my wife, children, family, and all my good friends. There's not one of them that can help me in that awful hour when I appear before the ineffable and the uncreated beam and pinches on my naked spirit. And I ask you this morning, are you ready for that day? You know, it's so easy to deceive and mislead one another. But are we ready to stand before the one that when all the lights of God's holiness shine into us and every aspect of us is open and exposed and we know we are guilty and sinful and filthy and all we can say in that day is, oi, but it'll be too late. You see, we need what he offers here. Notice in these last few verses, we have, of course, the confession of Isaiah, but then we have, Verse number 6 and 7. Consecration that takes place. There's a sacrifice. Verse 6 and 7. The, the seraphim come, take a live coal off the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth. And verse 7, he says, "My I touch thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, thy sin is purged. You see, before God can send us out to go to the world and be the church and to be the light, he first has to make a sacrifice. Can I say, I've spent a lot of time talking about sin and the holiness and the glory of God. But praise the Lord that God has made one way for us to be right with Him. There is a sacrifice. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the only righteous one, the way, the truth, and the life. And He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And God will save you. God will forgive you if you don't know Christ today. If you'll come and repent and call upon the Lord. God has made the sacrifice. Will you look? Will you trust? And then when you find that you've been consecrated. Then verse number 8. You can go. You can go on behalf of God. And be sent where he sends you to go. And go and tell this people. And the responses may vary. Maybe only a tenth will respond in return. It's not up for us to decide the outcome. It is up for us to decide our obedience. God doesn't hold you accountable for the outcome. He does hold you accountable for your obedience. And we find that in those closing verses. Let me just leave you with this as our time's winding down. Sometimes you've been on planes and you've traveled around. We just were able this summer to, to fly out west to go to Colorado uh, for a week on family vacation. And, and you know the sore you get on those planes, and they and when we were almost full, we were all the way at the back and the cheap seats and and uh, we went to take off, and as we did, it was stormy, and it's cloudy out. And you look around, you can't see anything, and it's dark, and there's turbulence, and there's wind, and the plane may be shaking a little bit. And you keep going up, and, there, and there's turbulence, and you're shaking, and you're kind of unsettled a little bit. But then we find that the, the pilot does something. He He takes you up higher, and higher, and higher, and then you know that moment where you break out of the clouds, and you look around, and it's the most... Calm, serene setting ever. The sun is shining, and there's nothing in the skies, and all the storm clouds and all the raging of the world is below you. And you sit in that moment and you thought, This is peace. Can I say to you, when you read this text, let it be a reminder that you need to rise above the fray of this world and remember that whatever the world does and all the raging, the Lord is the King of glory who is seated firmly on his throne and he is not shaken by anything that this world throws at him. He who fears God has nothing else to fear. Would you stand with me today?